Diplomatic efforts are doubling up to avoid war between Ukraine and Russia. Will it be enough? Hello and welcome to Unpublished TV. I'm Ed Hand. Since November, about 100,000 Russian troops have been stationed along the Ukraine-Russia border for what Russia calls military exercises. Ukrainians are growing more nervous about the prospect of war. Since the 2014 annexation of Crimea, Ukrainians have been dealing with violent insurgencies that have left thousands dead and their homes in tatters. French President Emmanuel Macron is meeting with Russian President Vladimir Putin today to try and reach an agreement. The U.S. has been warning of a possible invasion since late last year. Canada is keeping close tabs on the situation as the largest Ukrainian diaspora out of Ukraine and Russia reside here in Canada at 1.2 million people. This country has sent funding and non-military equipment with troops for training Ukrainian military. It has not sent lethal military weapons. Macron refers to today's meeting as a dialogue and de-escalation. This is a pivotal moment in the standoff. And joining us to discuss the Ukraine-Russia tensions and Canada's involvement, Dr. Alexander Wanashka. He is with uh, the University of Waterloo, the Basili School of International Affairs. Joe Breton, a former Canadian diplomat to Russia. Andrew Rasoulis is with the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. And Peggy Mason is the president of the Rideau Institute. And I thank you all for joining us. And, and Alex, how much of the military buildup is just for intimidation opposed to becoming active? Well, I think the military forces that Russia has positioned near or on Ukraine's border is very significant. The latest estimates hold that uh, Russia has about 75 or so battalion tactical groups. Uh, that's about 800 uh, military personnel each. And of course, they're supported by various other elements belonging to the Russian armed forces. And they're spread across multiple vectors along Ukraine's border, uh, vectors being uh, Crimea, as well as in uh, Eastern Ukraine's border region, as well as even Belarus, which is actually quite uh, much, uh, quite very much a game changer, because of course uh, Russia has not really had significant deployments in Belarus until very recently. So the combat credibility of those forces is very much uh, real, and the political rhetoric coming from the Kremlin is such that it brooks very little compromise because it makes various non-starter demands that, of course, NATO as well as Ukraine will reject. So it seems like there is no uh, meaningful bargaining space as regards to Ukraine or uh, some of the demands that NATO has, uh, has faced from Russia. And so that makes me very pessimistic. Of course, what is debatable is the scale of military operations that Russia can uh, have with these military forces. We don't know, but uh, all sorts of scenarios are being considered. And but I think that the uh, potential for a major escalation is very real indeed. Jill, how concerned is Russia about its international status and, and how does intimidation of Ukraine help or hinder that? Oh, I don't think there is a, a great deal. I wouldn't call it concern. There's been some, how to say, um, the, the concern has to do with the long term, if you want, in this case. It's the old idea of the uh, the, the nature of the European uh, security architecture that has emerged at the end of the Cold War, uh, with the expansion of NATO, so the concern is that you know, as a result, you know, for for how to say for the years of the Cold War, there was a certain balance, so to speak. I mean, uh, and Andrew would have sort of known I, I would, this this was achieved, for instance, with all these instruments, disarmament instruments that were in place. With the end of the Cold War, the collapse of the Soviet Union, and everything else, 
if you want, the, the architecture has been dismantled, but never replaced with anything that sort of, you know, uh, would take into account what you would call Russian interests. So they, basically they're saying, okay, we, we've looked at this now and we, we, we've reached a point where we want to have, um, how to say, a different security architecture. What is interesting in that respect is that they've heard the same thing also said from, by some European countries like the French and the Germans in the last few years in some indirect way. So this is what you're getting into is that uh, whereas the US did not want to engage in security discussions, uh, if you want, about European security architecture, uh, Emmanuel Macron just reminded us today that the last year, the German, the German, Germany and France had proposed the idea of a EU-Russia uh, security summit. So that's where you, you have in this, this sense, the preoccupation is to try to, to arrive at a new, how to say, a new system in place that would sort of deal with the long-term, uh, what, what, you know, people, you know, countries see as security threats. Uh, Andrew, Ukraine does want military weapons from Canada, but what message would it send to Russia if they are sent? And what would the impact be on Canada-Russia relations? Right. So the uh, there's, a, I mean, I think that, well, first let's walk back. There is asymmetrical dominant escalation capability for Russia. Any amount of weapons that Canada puts into the theater will have zero impact on the military dimension. It will send a hardline signal. Some people may want that for political reasons. But on the other hand, if we want to have a diplomatic role to play, and right now, I would say, with Macron in uh, Moscow and Schultz going to Washington and all this very positive activity, that Canada may wish to actually switch gears, as it has actually done since about for about two weeks now, uh, we have declined to send um, offensive weapons or weapons. There's no such thing as offensive, defensive, as weapons to uh, to Ukraine. And rather, we have, uh, I believe, uh, stepped up our diplomatic game. We don't hear very much about it, nor should we. Uh, this is not microphone diplomacy that should be taking place. But rather, Canada could be playing a very important uh, role behind the scenes uh, to, to buttress the effects that, that Macron and Schultz are going to try and do. And I would just like to pick up on, on what Gilles said about the security architecture in Europe. I think this is a key element now in terms of a diplomatic solution that may be uh, being played in. Uh, this will take some time. But the Americans have offered arms control. And in that arms control sort of package, there was the mention of the security architecture. The Russians have not rejected that part. The Russians have been focused on rejecting well, the, the debate about NATO and Ukraine. But if you move beyond that, and a, 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 you know, everyone knows Ukraine's not going to be in NATO anytime soon. There's no consensus for that. French and the Germans will not agree to it for certain. So the question then becomes, can we, in a security dimension dialogue, like in the Organization for Security Cooperation in Vienna, which has that mandate to actually discuss that, and uh, I was a delegate back there in, from 1992, and, and this was, at the end of the Cold War, this was a topic that was becoming discussed, and then other things happened. But so I think that, yes, I think Canada can step up the game diplomatically. Uh, we have a role to play. Uh, we also contribute to the Minsk proposals. That's also taking place. There'll be another a follow-up meeting in Berlin, I believe, on February 10th, approximately. So there's lots of stuff going on, and I think we would put our, our eggs in the diplomatic basket. Now, on the, on the military side, politically, Canada has done much more than it's been required to do. It's been punching a bit above its weight. So I think that there's um, there's no shame for Canada in that. 
but rather we have been underplaying our diplomatic game. And this is where I think the gate, the doors are open for us now, and I hope we're stepping through them. Uh, Peggy, the crux to Russia's problem with Ukraine seems to be NATO membership, and Ukraine has been a sovereign nation since 1991. Can it not make up its own mind? Peggy, we need your audio. Sorry, I took it off and forgot to put it back on. Oh, somebody always has to do that. Well, I guess in a perfect world, everybody would be able to be sovereign in all of their decisions. But, you know, decisions impinge on on interests of other countries. And the, you know, an important uh, point uh, not to forget about uh, Russia. And actually, it's quite fascinating that um, the most senior person in the uh, Russia expert in the American administration is uh, the head of the the head of the CIA, and uh, he wrote a memoir uh, because he was a key person at the end of the Cold War in the uh, serving in Moscow and in the American administration. And he wrote a memo, and uh, he wrote, met, wrote many memos. He wrote many warnings, as did other other key figures who have spoken out recently, warning very much about. Uh, disregarding Russia's, in its weakness, disregarding what they would regard as vital, as absolutely vital security interests, and in particular, um, enlargement of, uh, of, of NATO, and most particularly, um, Ukraine, Ukrainian uh, membership. And it was interesting because one of the things in his, in his memoir that he's at pains to demonstrate is that this is not something, you know, peculiar to Putin. This goes back to the, to the dissolution of the Soviet Union. And it was in his view and the view of many others, this is a broad view across Russia, regardless, uh, you know, uh, 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 regardless of sort of where you are in the, in the spectrum. So this is not a new problem. Russia has signaled essentially from the very beginning of the dissolution of NATO that they would regard it as a hostile act to have a military alliance uh, with me- member right on their right on their doorstep. So um, you know it's it's interesting because uh, you know Canada. Everyone who knows about foreign and defense policy in Canada knows that there are limits to what you know to Canadian freedom of action vis-a-vis uh, you know United States. And uh, and 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 we saw, of course, back a while the reaction of United States uh, to the Cuban missiles. You know, uh, Soviet stationing of missiles in Cuba. And um, let's, you know, there's even a doctrine, the Monroe Doctrine, which makes it very clear to Canada that, you know, there are limits. Um, you know, if, 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 we, if we took steps that United States saw were, were impinging on its vital interests, you know, they wouldn't say, oh, you're a sovereign country, you get to decide. So, you know, there is that, that realist aspect to it. And that's, what, that's what's so encouraging now about what Andrew was talking about and what Gilles was talking about, which is the dialogue that's going on behind the hype, unfortunately. And of course, the media is going to focus on the military buildup and they're going to focus on troops being moved here and there by the West. Uh, the BBC actually finally cottoned on to the UK's actions. Boris Johnson, the classic distraction from problems at home, de, you know, deciding to send some troops into Eastern Europe. The trouble there is, is that Biden then can't look weak. And so he has to move some troops around in Eastern Europe. And to them, this is all hype that's unhelpful. President Zelensky himself said, please, please calm down here. And, and, and the key point is that this diplomacy is now ongoing. I mean, it's ongoing at many levels. 
Um, and uh, Canada maybe, uh, and here I agree with uh, Andrew absolutely, maybe Canada now is moving towards a more constructive role because we have considerable influence off the top. You talked about, you know, the reasons, the people to people reasons, and there are many other reasons. And we've shown a lot of support uh, financially, good governance and so on for uh, for Ukraine. So we have influence. And uh, and now it looks like, uh, you know, we might uh, be moving towards really making that count uh, more in terms of solutions to the problems at hand. Alexander, uh, French President Macron is meeting with Putin today. And and what concerns does the European Union have if this accelerates? Concerns? Well, first of all, I disagree with everything that was just said. So I think that NATO enlargement has been overstated with respect to its impact on the current security situation as it's un- unfolding presently. After all, in 2008, uh, in part because of opposition by France and Germany, uh, NATO denied uh, a membership action plan to Ukraine as well as to Georgia, although they did release a communique shortly thereafter, suggesting that those two countries would become members eventually. And really, since 2008, the issue of NATO membership uh, with regards to those two countries has been more or less a non-starter, although, of course, uh, those two countries have been stepping up their security ties with various NATO countries. But even in 2012 and 2013, uh, NATO did have military exercises that actually did see Russia's involvement. So all, all things considered, I think we should be um, very wary of arguments that overstate the Russian impact here. Now, the reason why Macron has been fairly active in this regard is that he, he is, after all, um, leading a country that is now the president of the Council of the European Union, and he's been somewhat um, unhappy with how uh, the European Union has been more or less sidelined here. And this goes back to this classical debate about which uh, organization should really take the lead here with respect to uh, European security. Should it be NATO? Should it be the European Union? Um, Both organizations are at pains to insist that uh, neither of them are trying to cancel each other out, that there are complementarities to be built here. But even so, we should be careful not to overstate uh, some of the uh, reporting uh, that has come out uh, from Paris. Indeed, Macron has said himself that no deal with Russia would come at the expense of NATO countries. In some ways, there was a political article that had mistranslated some key aspects of Macron's remarks to the detriment of the alliance. So he's doing what Biden and what Johnson have done. They're not in it just to posture. I think, you know, if you look at their sweep of their history with regards to Ukraine, they've been fairly active in providing some level of support. They're not doing it for domestic reasons or what have you. Uh, but Macron is more or less doing what they have done, and he's been trying to manage expectations. It does, doesn't get really reported as well. But even so, the Kremlin has also said that they don't expect any major decisive breakthroughs uh, coming out of these talks all the same. Jill, uh, how does NATO membership for Ukraine automatically make Russia insecure? I thought NATO was a defensive mechanism. Well, you, you're right about the idea. We, we, we keep saying that NATO is a defensive mechanism. I think the issue is more... Um, I think let's not exaggerate in the sense that it's it's the uh, it's the idea of uh, how to say changes. Uh, I, I mean, to me, the, the problem with NATO membership for Ukraine, in, as seen from Moscow, is the idea that you could have NATO military assets in proximity of Russia. Okay. That being said, I think you know let's let's just sit back for a moment and say okay, 
that prospect is uh, a bit sort you know, first of all, of course, NATO, uh, Joe Biden, I think himself has said to Ukraine, not for 10 years. Uh, you cannot be a member of uh, NATO for 10 years. The French and the Germans are not in favor of it. There is also a quite a different view. I mean, let's not forget that Macron also has called NATO a brain dead organization. So let's let's just step back here. And I think there is this drive around that. You know, the Europeans want to to reassert a bit more control over European security uh, to to distance themselves a little bit from the United States. So I think it is exaggerated. It's the what is the um, I think it, you know some people have have sort of written about this in the sense that you know the fear of uh, Vladimir Putin would be that if you a country becomes a a member of NATO, its political culture changes. I'm not sure about that, actually. I mean, in the sense that, you know, I think in that respect, a country changes far more when it becomes a member of the European Union, actually, because that changes the whole way a country functions in terms of, you know, rules and engagement. So there is a kind of a, how to say, uh, um, I think it's a, it's not the, 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 the fear is exaggerated, actually. But the, the fear is not also at right now. It's not, it's not immediate in the sense that, you know, uh, it's not going to happen. And also, I think what you have to bear in mind is that the Russians know full well that uh, right now, the, the one of the things that has been mentioned is that um, there's always this idea, you when you used to, to call about the boys, sending the boys to defend a country, I mean, it's the US and the UK have made it clear that in the context of this uh, military confrontation with you, between Ukraine and Russia, they would not send troops. So I think that's one thing also that has been kind of a, uh, to see made a point in the sense that how much when you say about sovereignty, it's also the sovereignty of the country that decides to send troops. You know, Ukraine may want to, to join and, and may be entitled to join uh, NATO, but it's also a decision of the other member parties as to how this affects their own security. And then, of course, in that sense, you see, uh, putting the question just a matter of Ukraine sovereignty is a bit, uh, to say, with all due respect, that's somewhat misleading. But I think also it's a that, you, you know, we tend to exaggerate the fear. Uh, I mean, it's it's what the, uh, Vladimir Putin calls a red line, but I think it's it's not it's not that. I mean, that's a that's a way of. Uh, I mean, I don't, I don't think that's. I mean, he can say that as much as he wants, but I'm not sure it's exactly right in the sense, and that is totally shared with the uh, establishment in Russia, actually. Andrew, Ukraine may want NATO membership, but doesn't necessarily mean NATO wants it, does it? Exactly. I mean, there's a lack of consensus. Um, there are other countries that have actively uh, pr act, uh, proposed Ukrainian membership, certainly the Baltic states. Uh, Canada uh, have been in the forefront, Poland, of course. Um, but the alliance as a whole is not. And so, therefore, with the lack of consensus, uh, the prospects for Ukraine, Ukraine joining NATO are practically nil. And as Jill said, for 10 years, that's a reasonable guess. You never know in life. But I, it's not a realistic thing. What we are talking about, this is kind of the weirdness that we're talking a point of point of principle. And people are talking about going to war over a point of principle when reality is that it's not going to happen. So, you know, why are we going, threatening to go to war over a principle that's not going to happen? That's where we're at, actually, in terms of the, the military side of the equation. And that's why I'm, I'm hoping and I believe that calmer heads will prevail and practical solutions will come together. Uh, and as again, we've been talking about uh, a security framework for Europe. And I think that the whole issue of NATO enlargement and Ukraine's role in there and, and Georgian and Moldovan aspirations as well, can be folded into security architecture discussions, which would accommodate the role of the blocs. I mean, 
when we were doing uh, Vienna Document 90, we were accommodating three blocks, the NATO, Warsaw Pact, and the neutral and non-aligned block. And we built a security architecture for the late Cold War period, which then, of course, ended with the Cold War ended. And we've been struggling ever since. And so, and I think that what we have here in, in terms of the Russian perspective, uh, they try to play with us and so on. But by 2007, uh, Putin in his famous address to the Munich uh, conference, defense conference said that basically uh, we have been rebuffed and we're, we're not going to take it anymore. That's, that's his speech, basically. And so then you have the events of August 2008 with Georgia and the little war they had when they aspired to join NATO and so on and so forth, and then Maidan. So all that to say is that the Russians have made very clearly, and they have made very clearly this past year, uh, as they're doing now, about with the force buildup about Ukraine. And that they're saying, this is another case where Russia is not going to take it anymore. So what are we going to do about it? And we can do something about it with a discussion on security architecture in Europe, combined with arms control. Basically, let's reset the package that we had in a new way that we had in 89-90 at the end of the Cold War for the current situation and bring the Russians into the tent, if you will, the security architecture tent. Peggy, why wouldn't the European Union want Ukraine to, to join NATO? Well, again, it's individual countries. I mean, it's 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 different countries have different views mm. on, on, on that. And frankly, for a number of countries, I mean, the, the sort of basis of uh, one of the basic features of the NATO alliance is the Article Article Five, and you know, a, a, an attack against one is an attack against all. Now that the response to that is always misstated. The media always says, therefore, you're obliged. Each member of NATO is obliged to defend. The rest. In fact, what the NATO, what the what Article Five says is an attack on one is considered attack on all, and then it's up to each country to determine how it will respond. But nonetheless, the fact that you've stated that an attack on one is an attack on all means that vital security interests of each member of uh, of NATO would would be in play or or could be in play um, if uh, Ukraine was brought in and then there was a crisis. So it's very, you know, it's a, it's a, you know, this is an unsettled question. There, there are, um, there are huge risks. And therefore, I think it's very prudent for countries to look very closely and say, no, this might not be a good idea at this time. It's not going to solve problems. It's going to create further, further problems. But I'd like to come back to, you know, in terms of diplomacy. I mean, one of the things that, you know, everyone should acknowledge is that this latest brinkmanship by, uh, by, by, by Russia has got more attention to the issue of the European security architecture and the discussion and the and negotiation and the arms control side. Now the arms control side had already started. So that, you know, the Putin, uh, Putin Biden summit in June, I mean, they had, they had launched that. Um, uh, so, you know, that wasn't because of the brinkmanship, but, uh, but in terms of getting everyone much more engaged in, in the next steps in trying to fix you know, get a real post-Cold War architecture. You know, uh, they, they've succeeded in focusing minds on that. But the one area, the one part of this equation that still isn't being directly focused on in the way it should, and certainly not in the media, and, and, and Andrew mentioned the Minsk Accords. In, in fact, there is a deal. There is a deal that has been negotiated by Russia and Ukraine, which actually deals with the status of Ukraine. Uh, and that deal has been reaffirmed. I mean, in every single one of the high-level meetings that have taken place 
since this crisis started, there has been a reaffirmation of the Minks Accords as the, and their implement, implementation being the only way forward. And in fact, President Zelensky of Ukraine campaigned on implementation of the Minks Accords, but he's finding it hard going. He's finding it very hard going because there's great opposition uh, in, 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 uh, in, in, in Kiev to this. I mean, in a nutshell, there, you know, there's a difference of view between Western Ukraine and Eastern Ukraine with respect to the relationship they want to have with Russia versus Europe and the, and the compromise that's in the Minsk Accord, uh, which I emphasize everyone has affirmed and even the UN Security Council has blessed. It calls for a special status, like a federated Ukraine and a special status for the East uh, to be determined, the detail of that to be determined or to be ratified in a free and fair election. And I mean, the result would likely be given the views in Eastern Ukraine that there would be a de facto neutrality for Ukraine because they, Eastern Ukraine wouldn't vote for joining NATO. The point here is, is that this is a deal that was freely negotiated and it has been blessed by everybody. But Ukraine, I mean, President Zelensky found very hard going in terms of implementation. And there's been a, a fight over, well, how can you have the referendum if there are still foreign forces and mercenaries in the, in the country? And that's kind of the last place the debate was left. And of course, Canada and, and, and Andrew's, you know, I'm, I'm cribbing from his from the paper, he's written a detailed paper. I mean, uh, a peacekeeping force, you know, this is not a new idea. A peacekeeping force can oversee the referendum to ensure it's free and fair. A peacekeeping force, not an unarmed monitors, a peacekeeping force. And then they can oversee the withdrawal of foreign forces. So in other words, the Minsk deal is implementable. The point is, is that um, uh, in, in essence, Zelensky's finding it extraordinarily difficult to actually move forward because of political opposition in his own country. And that's where Canada comes in, because up to now, we haven't been putting any pressure on them at all, because this deal is not popular uh, in, uh, in, in, among, uh, among uh, uh, well, I would say hardline Ukrainian Canadians, that uh, some of them at least do not like this deal at all. And Canada doesn't even mention the word minxed agreement. But the point is, is that it's there, and it's get and that's where Macron originally came in because Germany and France under this framework called the Normandy format, which brings in France and Germany to help facilitate progress in implementing the agreement, that's been started up again as a result of all the latest flurry of diplomacy, and uh, and, and 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 so that you know that's 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 one hat that Macron is wearing. Um, it's not clear in this in this visit to Moscow. I mean, he has he hasn't talked about minxed. He's talked in much more you know baby step terms about things that might you know might come out of this meeting. Um, but all of which to say is that the diplomacy aspect is not kind of pie in the sky. There's a lot there. There's a lot that can be done. Uh, but you know, all sides have to negotiate in in in, in good faith on this. Uh, Alexander, uh, Vladimir Putin does have an ally in China's Jinping. He made comments at, at the Olympics earlier this week. Is that due to the similarities to Taiwan? No. Uh, so I think people have uh, misconstrued that relationship as being uh, entirely rooted in this interest of theirs to counterbalance the United States, in part because of U.S. foreign policy since 
maybe the mid 2000s, if not earlier. But really, the relationship between China and uh, Russia, uh, as it has been developing, really dates back to the 1980s when Russia was still part of the Soviet Union. That was a time when Soviet decision makers believed that they had to uh, get over some of their long-standing disputes uh, with the Chinese, in part because of the economic growth models that the uh, Soviet leadership were pursuing at the time. And indeed, throughout the 1990s, through the 2000s, and then through the 2010s, of course, we do see a gradual uh, improvement in the defense cooperation. Even in the early 1990s, not long after the Soviet Union collapsed, uh, they had even signed a number of uh, agreements that would resolve a lot of the border disputes that had become uh, very difficult in the earlier parts of the Cold War. So I think what we're seeing right now is um, a close alignment, to be sure, between those two countries. They have areas of mutual interest. They seem to be fairly adept in managing what disputes they've had or could have in parts of the world like Central Asia. There are still, of course, areas of friction, and there are worries that Russia might simply become a resource appendage to China. And indeed, China holds a lot of the cards in that relationship. I think Moscow knows this and has sought to diversify away from sources. It's, you know, what's interesting to me is whether they'll actually go as far as to sign a mutual defense treaty, something that they might have, that they did do, in fact, uh, early in the Cold War, but ultimately uh, collapsed because, again, of those disagreements that I mentioned. But I think they have sufficient reasons to be a little wary of aligning, aligning themselves too close to one another because they are involved in disputes like um, Ukraine and Taiwan. Uh, and I think either one of them will be reluctant to uh, get too, too involved in those conflicts that might be really peripheral to their own interests. Jill, how is this current standoff playing in the Russian public? Oh, I think it, it it's not playing very much, actually, if, if I may say. I think sure. the, the Russians would know that uh, what the president says, it's not, as they say, they don't see it as bluff, but they, they kind of uh, see this as a, a for what it is. I think, uh, how to say this, we ourselves tend to look at, at political speeches in a certain way. I think the Russian public would look at them, hear them quite differently in the sense that, you know, they've, they've seen this, this kind of, a, how to say, a confrontation, let's call it, between Russia and Ukraine for so many years now. So it, I don't think, I think they might be concerned about the possibility of war, but as as the Ukrainians, mind you, as Zelensky himself, they would probably take this a, a view which is rather similar to that of President Zelensky about uh, let's not panic. Uh, if you've seen the call from President Zelensky in that respect. So I think this reflects what I would call a, a generally Soviet political view of the world, so to speak, how you, you understand speeches. And if you if you live in that part of the world, you understand things slightly differently. So the, the perception becomes different. So I would not see a, bit, much, a big difference between what President Zelensky is saying and what the Russian public would be saying. Let's not exaggerate this. Yeah. Uh, Andrew, you feel Canadian. Sorry. I just wanted to add something to what the, Alexander just said also. I think what is important to understand also is this, this idea of a, a multipolar world. When it comes to dealing with China uh, and uh, countries of Asia, I think that the, the idea behind Russia's head also is always to think of this idea that we're now dealing in a multipolar world because there is no special, as Alexander just said, there is no special love between China and Russia ever. Mm -hmm. uh, let's not be misled, but I think what they see as, as the way of handling this is the future. And that's why they have created the Shanghai Cooperation Organization if you want, to handle this idea that you're dealing with a, a multipolar, and which is a bit, of course, uh, an idea of interesting to foreign policy specialists, but I think it's it's relevant to the to the understanding what's going on. 
And Andrew, you felt uh, Canadian diplomacy uh, is the prudent way to go. But a lot of people say, why bother when, you know, it seems Vladimir Putin is rarely swayed from his from his point of view. Ah, he has his point of view, uh, the issue, but there, there, I mean, he, okay. So he has said, you know, no way Ukraine's getting into NATO. That's his kind of first demand. And then, and then a bunch of other stuff. That's not to say that they can't compromise and make nuances. And I believe that on the security architecture, architecture framework is the compromise, the seed of the compromise on the NATO enlargement issue. So that's just my supposition. Uh, and we'll see where that goes. But I think Canadian diplomacy can actually be a go-between, uh, as Peggy had mentioned, uh, getting the Ukrainians to appreciate the benefits inherent in the Minsk package and having the Russians uh, perhaps soften their, their some of the, the statements they make on Ukraine. And we could actually work between the two to actually help get people, well, they are, they are at the table. They are meeting in Berlin, so they're at the table. But perhaps we can work behind the scenes to make that process move forward. Because although they are meeting, which is a very positive thing, always when you're sitting at the table, that's good. But we've got to start getting that that those implementation uh, log jams out. And Peggy mentioned, I've been talking about a peacekeeping force, a robust peacekeeping force in the Donbass, by which elections can be held, because that's been the big hangup. How can you have elections under the gun, as, as Zelensky says? Well, you can demilitarize with a robust peacekeeping force, a neutral one, of course, um, and that could then open the gateway. But that means, as Peggy again has mentioned, the issue of Ukrainian nationalists, the, 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 the particularly the more extreme elements who are resisting any form of a Minsk process because they think that that will essentially close the gates to a NATO enlargement for Ukraine. But Canada can play a role if we want to. Can I jump in here for a second? If I have time? Yeah, sure. Because I think we have to, you know, Minsk is effectively dead, right? Yes, there is that agreement. Yes, it has UNSC uh, um, endorsement and so forth and so forth. But the fact of the matter is that as much as there are aspects of the Minsk Accords that do actually have the wide support of the Ukraine public, it is problematic uh, that you know, it does demand those constitutional amendments. And the concern is that those constitutional amendments would in effect give Russia a direct role in Ukrainian domestic politics. That's the non-starter for many Ukrainians. And the reason why the agreement is drafted the way that it is, is that it represented a particular moment in the history of this crisis when Ukraine was actually very weak in 2014 and 2015, such that it really had little choice but to agree to those provisions. But it turns out that Ukraine is actually much stronger than what was believed at that time, that has actually been much more resilient, that hasn't had its resources sapped as a result of this crisis, that was able to tilt more and more towards Euro-Atlantic institutions. Whether you think that's prudent or not, that's another matter. But the point is that Ukraine is actually much stronger than the weak bargaining position that it had, such that the Minsk Accords are just not a viable way forward. And I think it sort of speaks to the lack of political imagination of our leaders not to think further beyond Minsk and to think that this is the only way to go when clearly there are parts of that agreement that are very uh, problematic. And I think uh, another issue too is that- And I just you know, jumped in has, on the you know, dead. Major, on Russia, the dead. No, you jumped in on saying they were dead. And I want to jump in and say in the last three weeks, the Minsk Accords have been reaffirmed by every player as the only way forward. We've also seen- So it's just, it's just not on to say they're dead. Right, and the day after there was that announcement from Elysee, there was a record number of violations 
in the Donetsk and Luhansk. Uh, yeah. But nonetheless, every party, ha every time, I mean, go go on the White House website and look at the statement. I agree. And no, they, they reaffirm as the full implementation as yes. the only way forward. I, Ukraine I, 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 I has got they have to a lack of political imagination that they cannot think forward because they because the Minsk Accords are effectively dead in the sense that Ukraine has announced on many occasions that direct talks with those uh, rebel forces, which were really proxy forces, are a non-starter, that there's a clear red line that Ukraine does not want to cross here. So, and I think that again speaks to uh, the fact that Ukraine is much stronger than what the Minsk Accords um, uh, would suggest. And this uh, notion that we have to enforce uh, Ukraine's expense, the Minsk Accords, I think, reveals the very problematic nature of the settlement. We have to have buy-in from Ukrainians for this sort of settlement to last. And by the way, the part of the problem too is that Russia has not entirely been clean about its own involvement, that it has this air of plausible deniability that also complicates the uh, viability of this agreement. So I think we need to be a little more honest about the actual prospects of the agreement. I think Russia needs to be much more honest about its own uh, role here. And indeed, parts of its buildup actually violate the Minsk Accords too, so that's another issue. I just think that we need to move a little bit beyond the Minsk Accords and start fresh. I understand that the Biden administration has endorsed it, that it has the weight of Germany and France behind it. I totally understand that, but I think that's also problematic too. All right, uh, folks, uh, <laughs> great discussion. <laughs> and we ripped through time very well, very well. I wanna thank our guest today on Unpublished TV, Alexander, uh, Wanashka, he's the assistant professor of the Department of Political Science at the Basili School of International Affairs at the University of Waterloo. Gilles Breton, former Canadian diplomat to Russia. Andra Rusoulis, he's with the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. And Peggy Mason, president of the Rideau Institute. Coming up on the next Unpublished Cafe, another federal conservative leader bites the dust with the infighting. What is the future of the Conservative Party of Canada? We have a stellar lineup to tear up the issue. Thanks for watching Unpublished TV. Stay safe. I'm Ed Hand.